Basically, did quite a good job. First attempt, no, no, no qualms whatsoever. No, no criticism. I couldn't cut someone's hair, but you know, so you know the bit by your ears of your head. Yeah. So she just kind of cut it straight rather than leaving just a little tiny, tiny bit to kind of recognise the shape of the ear. So I now look like Forrest Gump. Turn your head on the side so we get a proper view of it. You see, it is a bit. It is a bit cameo from the nineteen eighties. It is. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. But it still suits you because you're an attractive man. It's, mm, I don't know. I, I've, I've been enjoying letting myself down with, with a lack of personal grooming. Hygiene has maintained itself, but I've not really groomed myself for a long time. But now I've the rest to... of your body hair. Have you let that loose as well? <laughs> just, yeah, just it's, um, well, I mean, as, as you know, Chinch, I'm smooth like a seal in many areas. Yes. The, um, the, but no, now I've got to put, I've, I've, weirdly, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I've put product in my hair because it's the only way of making my kind of slightly botched home haircut look vaguely acceptable to my wife who is also the person who perpetrated the haircut there's a whole mess of things going on i've been threatening to do the kids hair for about a fortnight they needed their haircut before the lockdown started so it's it's pretty serious but if i if i do theirs then katie is insisting on doing mine so i might hold off for a while yeah how can i phrase this delicately steve would would yours not be quite a simple job (laughs) well do you know what? The, the less of it you've got, Rory, the greater care you need to take with the remainder. That's true. That's true. Jason Statham has the same problem. You've got to be very careful when you have no hair. I mean, obviously, I would look like an all-action hero if I was to go a little bit tighter. You know, a, a sort of Bruce Willis, Jason Statham type, perhaps. But are we willing to take the risk? Yeah, does, does, does we need an all-action hero, do you feel? Do you think there's enough, there's enough going on there that they think- need you to don a cape? All of society needs an all-action hero right now, Chinch. As long as you stay two metres away from the people that you are saving and um, you respectfully stay at home to do your all-action heroing. Move back! Slightly <laughs> further back! Slightly <laughs> further back! Slightly further back! And now administer CPR. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends in lockdown talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Andy Hinchcliffe, on lockdown in leafy Cheshire, Stephen Wyeth in lockdown homeschooling hell, and Rory Smith in lockdown Lego heaven. Rory, would you like to tell everybody about uh, the castle that you built for your son? Well, well I wasn't intending to, no, um, but fine. So Ed has got a bit bored of Duplo, so I, we've cracked out the, um, these kind of old Lego boxes, but we're not, we don't have like kit Lego that you fancy kids get now. It's just old Lego from when I was a kid and from when Kate was, was a kid and when her brother was a kid. Uh, so it's basically just a hiddledy-piddledy load of boxes with a couple of like things that look like they came off Lego cars, but we've lost all the wheels thrown in. So I thought I'd build him a castle. We've been doing car parks. He loves a car park, says Edward, but I thought I'd build a castle. Uh, and my plan was to build two opposing castles with a specific colour scheme 
and this Tullus team was, this is really sad, was going to be one, <laughs> there was going to be a River Plate castle and a Boca Juniors castle. But then I realised we don't have that many bricks. So it became a kind of across the Super Classico divide castle where the River Plate turrets were protecting the Boca fortress. Do we feel and like that, there is a metaphor in there somewhere? No, no, there is no metaphor whatsoever. Of course, Ed is two, so has no idea what I'm going on about. But when I said to Kate, can you guess what the colour scheme is? She just looked at it and then with this sort of withering disdain went, it'll be something to do with Argentinian football, won't it? And then walked off. <laughs> Chinch, you're building a patio. It's a story that we're going to come to later, so I don't want to give the game away. Oh, team. Um, yes, for the soccer story, which is to come, I believe. Um, so I don't, know, I don't want to give too much away. It wasn't something I planned on doing during the lockdown, but I've been encouraged to do it by my wife. She's put my arm up my back, quite literally. So I'm cracking on with a patio, but we'll, I'll tell you a bit more about that later. Okay, and Stephen, you're, you are homeschooling even on bank holidays. Do you know what? When we, I have lost track of time so comprehensively that when we were trying to set a date for this, I, I'd completely overlooked that it was Easter weekend. So I, I did give them Good Friday and Easter Monday off, but otherwise I have cracked the whip right through the school holidays. Yeah, uh, well, to be fair, who remembers that it's Easter when you're not in lockdown? Exactly. And they haven't been working hard enough, Rory. There wasn't enough done in the, the final two weeks of term during which we started homeschooling to satisfy the new teacher that the level of education had been maintained. So do you know what? They're going to have to make up for it in their own time. Have you done them a report? There will be a report going back to the teacher, which will be as accurate as the <laughs> report that I receive from them. Because at no point during any of my children's glowing school reports have they mentioned their inability to concentrate, their argument, argumentative nature, and their, quite frank, lack of any sort of cohesion in terms of their spelling or their grasp of mathematics. <laughs> So uh, I will be asking some serious questions when the schools reopen. Steve, can you set homework when you're homeschooling? <laughs> yes, uh, Katie gets to do the homework. I will be, uh, be setting plenty of it as well to be done in the evenings and at the weekends. Uh, the food is in four different places. What are we all having for lunch? An apple and a twirl. An apple and a twirl. That is great. Yeah. Uh, my pre-patio building food is a pita bread with turkey slices, avocado, yes, avocado, Stephen, uh, salad, and most importantly, the key ingredient, egg. Absolutely delicious. Made, not by me, by Carly Hinchcliffe. I'm going to have a baked potato, apparently, but I've not really been involved with the, with the construction or the kind of creation of it, so I'm not quite sure what, what form it's going to take. And what but kind of on... topping are you going to go with? Well, I suspect it'll just be cheese. To be honest, Kate, Kate has a slightly different approach to lunch to me. When my parents got married, my dad always worked from home. My mum said that she was happy for him to work from home, except that she, she should never be expected to eat lunch with him. And she's always said that that is the secret to a happy marriage. You never have lunch together. So then you've got something to talk about in the evening. Uh, and to be honest, I see the, the logic there. Does people have different approaches to lunch? I, I like a moderately ceremonial lunch of several courses, whereas <laughs> Kate is very much like, this will get me through until five o'clock when Edward has his dinner. So, um, and it's, so it's good I mean. to hear that your parents are married, Rory. You aren't a bastard. I'm not, I'm not a, a bastard. They are, they are still happily married, although I suspect that like a lot of people who've been married for a long time, suddenly being forced to spend every minute of the day together is not a great <laughs> idea. Even having lunch together, even now. So the food is in four different places. The football is chinched. Do you know what we're talking about today? Oh, yes. Is it... <laughs> Soccer with a coronavirus twist? 
Well, today we are dipping back into the coronavirus well. Hopefully the person who emailed a few weeks ago saying, please don't talk about coronavirus again, has been satisfied by the fact that we haven't for three weeks now. But we are dipping back in because the pandemic has seemed to have either shone a light on or unearthed a couple of particular long-running truths. Football does not speak with one voice and football might need better accountants. So that is to come shortly. You can get in touch still with the podcast, even though we are not together. You can still use the internet to contact us. Uh, We are also on Twitter and Facebook, and you can email at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We start with this from Simon Bodsworth, who has sent something in, which is rather lovely. Greetings, Set Piece Menu friends. Firstly, I hope you and your families are keeping safe and healthy at this most unusual and disconcerting of times. The huge disruption to social contact and interaction has been overwhelming for us all, but I was nevertheless surprised by my reaction to hearing your voices this week on the podcast. As listeners, we all know at some level we are listening to a group of professionals from the communications industry generating some great content. But at a really important level, the interaction, genuine warmth and intimacy of your conversations makes me feel quite simply like I'm the fifth guy in the room. I'm the one in the corner, always on the point of adding my points to the conversation, but Just happy to be part of the greatest swirl of opinion and comment flowing around me. I found myself genuinely relieved to hear your voices. I felt like we'd pop down the pub for a sneaky pint. Give a shout out to the SPM audience to stay safe. That is Simon Bodsworth. That is very nice, nice. Simon. Thank you. If I could be on the pub with Simon, can I have a sparkling water? (laughs) Yes, you can. A sneaky sparkling water. Do you think we should make Simon a buffalo on account of the fact that sycophancy with eloquence is is kind of... um, the best way of getting to us. Hugh, you're such a cynic. That wasn't sycophancy. That was a genuine heartfelt, that's a genuine heartfelt emotion. You're, you're like a broken human. <laughs> well, I after think... this amount of time spent with my wife, also during the lunch hour, I can understand why. To be fair, I, I know lots of people who live with us who would be pretty annoyed at the idea that someone might be enjoying listening to us talk. But the, um, I think def- I'm, I'm pro-Buffalo status. Yeah, definitely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so congratulations to Simon. You concur, Chinch. Uh, Now, uh, we have had an overwhelming amount of correspondence over the last few weeks, and it would be impossible to reflect all of it here. We shall attempt to filter in more on our two-parter about footballing conversations over the course of future pods, but I know that you're all desperate to hear hear how much fury greeted our 20-team European Super League startup from last week. Well, the answer is surprisingly little. To remind you, we, after a good deal of discussion during which someone on Twitter noted that Stephen was ignored throughout, alighted upon these clubs to start said Super League using SPM's patented formula of size, history, current relevance, and geographical spread. And at last, I think people are starting to get that particular message. They were, chinch for your benefit, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund, Juventus, PSG, Benfica, Ajax, Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal, Milan, Inter, Galatasaray, Olympiacos, Zenit, FC Copenhagen, Red Star Belgrade, and Celtic. Despite the relatively little fury, the one team that provided it more than any other was Celtic. Graham Stephen. Right. I wonder if he is the exact opposite to Stephen Graham. Uh, good afternoon, Jet like Tool and not Scouse. Good afternoon, gents. Just listen to the podcast where you rather quickly and understandably body swerve the century-old Rangers slash Celtic debate. So here is what must be the anticipated response from the blue half of the city. To make it easy for you, when talking about the criteria, you mentioned ruling out the Milan clubs as their sharing of a stadium indicated that the city could not offer two international class stadiums. A quick scan down the UEFA list of elite stadiums will reveal that Glasgow does in fact have two on that list, neither of which 
are Celtic Park. So Celtic could be ruled out on your criteria for not having the required facilities. Clearly, Queen's Park, Hamden, are not getting into the Super League, which means if you need Scottish representation, then Rangers at Ibrox take that spot. Yes, Celtic were the first British team to win the European Cup in 1967, but Rangers, Aberdeen and Dundee United have all won a European trophy more recently than that. Indeed, you have to go back to 2003 for Celtic's last appearance in a final compared to Rangers' infamous appearance in Manchester in 2008. Rangers were, of course, members of the very first Champions League in 92-93, having dispatched the English champions. They were unbeaten in that campaign, losing out to Bernard Tappy's suspiciously victorious Marseille side. I firmly believe that Rangers uh, would have, could have won the trophy that year. Finally, how could you have a Super League without the club that has won more domestic titles than any other? I understand that Celtic's self-styled club like no other and greatest fans in the world is easier to buy into than Rangers' no-one-likes-us-we-don't-care attitude. But Scotland's representative deserved more discussion than a simple it has to be Celtic. Kind regards, uh, Graham Stephen. And also, just quickly, after making his point on Twitter, Guso Macedo Perez emailed this. Greetings from Chihuahua in northern Mexico. Yes, like the dogs. No, we don't have plenty of them. Most of us despise those neurotic creatures, although some disturbed people do carry them around just like anywhere else in the world. I like to think of myself as a smart football fan, so finding your podcast a couple of months ago was certainly a joy, and I've listened to it ever since. Thanks for all the insights you share. So, about that European Super League. I didn't agree with all of your choices, but I did understand the criteria that led you to including each team, except for Celtic. I just don't see the relevance of that league. If I was to ask people around me for Scottish teams, I don't think anyone would come up with even one name. And the geographical area was already covered. As I mentioned on Twitter, I believe you were geographically biased as that country is next to yours and probably you do hear about their football. Your thoughts on the Celtic argument team? I would buy a lot of those arguments about Rangers. We probably overlooked Rangers' candidacy a little bit too easily because we do maybe forget quite how good they were in the 90s. They are the most successful uh, club, like domestic title winning club in, in the world. Uh, I, th- I still think, as it goes, I still think the fact that Celtic have won the European Cup would edge me towards them. And to be honest, anyone who's used the Wi-Fi at Ibrox would find it extraordinary to think that that's a five-star UEFA stadium. <laughs> Ridiculous. You can still hear the modem dialing up. The, um, <laughs> the, so, I mean, on, on, on that score, it's a straight no on Rangers, for, just from the Wi-Fi point of view. But the, um, I think we probably did overlook it a little bit. And Gustavo in Mexico is probably right that we're, we're maybe more conscious of, of Scottish football than people elsewhere around the world. But equally Celtic, particularly, well, it's true of Rangers as well, Celtic are a massive international brand. It's huge. You go anywhere in the world, you meet, you meet Celtic fans in the same way as they sort of track along the lines of where there are Irish pubs. So I think that Celtic, from, in terms of scale of support, and again, having won a European Cup, warrant inclusion in the same way as Ajax do, despite coming from a league that a lot of people would say is, is broadly irrelevant. And as I pointed out to this Gustavo on Twitter, that just because football fans in Mexico might not be familiar with Scottish football doesn't mean you should discount them from a European Super League because there will be lots of huge clubs with massive followings who've had tremendous success all around the globe who might not be very well known to Scottish football fans. So you can't discount a team on the basis that they might not be terribly well known in a different part of the, in, in a different part of the world. It does make me think, though, that pro- a, is there not a follow-up here? Should, should we not do a global Super League? I'd be very interested in doing that. Chinch is making the universal sign on this uh, particular <laughs> meeting software of I want to speak next. He's put his glasses on. No, up. no, no. I'm, I'm quite happy with Celtic. Um, FC Copenhagen, talk to me about them. That was a geographical uh, spread issue because we needed to re- represent Scandinavia. 
is it a question of needing to represent or which teams fall into the case? Isn't that, that FC Copenhagen uh, geographic? Is that, is that a criteria for, for a super league? Yeah, it is. Yes, it is our criteria. The patented set piece menu criteria is to involve and heavily rely upon geographical spread. Did anybody else question Copenhagen's inclusion in this? I think most people appreciated, Chinsley, if you were going to have a European Super League, you couldn't just discount the inclusion of a Scandinavian team altogether. Well, I've I've just forgotten Scandinavia. I forgot it even existed, to be honest. So that's why I just found FC Copenhagen a quite ludicrous suggestion. But uh, let's move on to a global Super League. Why not? You had your most significant European escapade in your footballing career in Scandinavia. Um, I did. And I I think I told the story about having to do a phone-in at minus 14 degrees at Copenhagen, where they, one of the stands had been demolished and was being rebuilt, and it was just like a, a mural with all fans on it when Man City played there. So maybe I've got it in for Copenhagen because I was left to freeze nearly to death to do it. But were you my boss at that point, Ferris? Yes, we had a lovely you time. We were. Yes, we both wore salopettes, but I was referring to your, your big win for Everton against Reykjavik. Yes, that's different. When I, was, when I was upended and hit the barren tundra to win a penalty because of my surging pace and, and the only step over I've ever done in 17 years was successful. So anyway, yes, Reykjavik, we, we put them to the sword 4-3 on aggregate. Just to be clear, Chinch, Hugh does consider himself to be your boss currently as well. <laughs> in, in what capacity, Stephen? In the podcast capacity, Chinch. I think intellectually, I will take the hit. But he ain't the boss of me, Stevie boy. If anyone is, you and Rory are. <laughs> Just anybody but. But yeah, perhaps we should maybe think about doing a global Super League or, and uh, we'll try and reflect this over the course of the next couple of weeks, perhaps or ways of doing a secondary European Super League, a European Super League hold two, on, hold and on, then hold having on, hold on. Uh, promotion and relegation. Chinch has put his hand so, up. FC Copenhagen going to be in the global Super League because of geographic uh, criteria? No. Yeah. Oh, right. Who's going, to be in, who's going to be in the Scandinavian pot then? Well, no, the Scandinavia would be subsumed into broader Europe and you'd have to, you'd have to reflect. That's just copping out. That's copping so out. The world is a lot bigger than Europe, Chinch. Copenhagen's just going to get swallowed up by Barcelona, is it? Is that what's going to happen? Take off Typical. your blue and yellow Typical. tinted spectacles. <laughs> These spectacles, I bought four pairs from Boots. Can I say Boots? Are we allowed to advertise? I didn't realise they're in the old lady section because they've got floral motifs on the, uh, on the sides. And I, but they work brilliantly. I can see. I can see. It's tremendous. But anyway, FC Copenhagen, oh, they, they'd lose out on the global scale then, would they? But yeah, European Super League, they're in. Great. That makes sense. We will have that argument another day. You remember that Gusso was emailing about Celtic. Um, well, he uh, continues with this. The Super League has been made because... Look at what I did. I fixed your teams into FIFA 20 in my Xbox and let the machine simulate the whole tournament. Russia's Zenit is not available, by the way, so I substituted it with CSK Moscow, Siska, uh, to us uh, literate. (laughs) And Red Star Belgrade wasn't available either, so I called in Dinamo Zagreb from Croatia. Here is what happened. Barcelona won the championship. In a last week switch, Real Madrid took second place, leaving Liverpool in third. Atletico got fourth from Juve, or Piemonte Calcio, as they are uh, on FIFA. Siska fails to win its final game, and that tie sends them to relegation, along with Dinamo Zagreb and, Chinch will be pleased to hear, FC Copenhagen. By the way, Celtic finished in 16th place. He sent a list of tables, by the way, chronicling the league season. They're all very interesting, but he does say this. Additional trivia is the goals table, which might discredit this whole simulation exercise. Antoine Griezmann and Eden Hazard, the two most disappointing signings of the year so far, take first and second places in the goals chart. I hope this little game of mine gives us all 
an idea of what a European Super League might look like and furthermore provides us some entertainment in these dark times. Hope to hear from you soon. Uh, that is Guso. That strikes me as being quite a good way of spending your lockdown time. I've been really intrigued by how different people's lockdown experiences are because obviously like Steve is, is homeschooling and therefore I imagine at his wit's end. I'm working the, harder than I do when I'm actually allowed to go to work, Rory. Well, I mean, Kate, Kate has to, it has to be said, because I'm still relatively busy. Kate's done, been amazing at like, entertaining Ed. But obviously, if you're a parent of any, of any sort of child, that is your focus during lockdown. But also, like, you see on Twitter, all these people saying, oh, you know, watching this on Netflix or doing this on Football Manager or this on, on the Xbox. And you think, well, th- that's a very different experience of being trapped in your house that to vast millions of people will be having. Um, so I think we're all, I've, I've become very, very conscious the last few days. This isn't now a really earnest, serious point, which I didn't really mean to make. Sorry. Um, of like how of like projecting our lockdown experiences on other people. That's I'm just looking forward to the lockdown being lifted so I can have a bit of a break, to be honest. So Guso's been working very hard. Others have too. Check out at Victoria Gunnar on Twitter, who's done a whole spreadsheet. Others just took a picture of a handwritten note with their 20 teams, but many have contributed to this debate. Finally, on this subject for now, from Eamon Dunn. Hi, gents. Love the latest episode. Passed a very enjoyable hour of my daily walk up and down the ramps of the multi-storey car park in my condo building here in locked down Manila. Uh, Just an observation suggestion. What about Hertha Berlin? While I appreciate they don't have the success and tradition of almost all the other clubs on the list, could an exception be made for a club in the untapped capital of Germany with an existing mega stadium already to hand? That's from Eamon Dunn. And the capitals debate was one that raged on Twitter as well, with many people suggesting that Roma might get a look in because so many capital cities are strangely not represented because the footballing heartland seem to be elsewhere in most countries. Well, yeah, but, and I saw, I saw that, that Steve, in his guise as the official Twitter account of Set Piece Men, you had this conversation with quite a few people. Yet we had to, you have to root it in some sort of reality, because if not, it becomes too easy. So if there was someone who suggested to Steve that, that maybe we, we could use this as an, opportun- as an opportunity to completely rewrite like, football history and say, right, there's now one team from Manchester, one team from Madrid, one team from Milan. That would be a conversation that even for the way we go off on tangents and kind of, distract ourselves and lose our threads that would last about 15 minutes because you just pick the 20 biggest cities and write and be say and say right it's those ones although i take the point on hertha being a potential kind of candidate if we strike out all of the other criteria by doing that you make it a bit too easy and you'd also be in a situation where you'd be over promoting teams as you said rory it's got to be rooted in some kind of reality although we are looking at lots of different criteria there has to be an acceptance that you're basing it on who the the superpower teams are at the same time as giving you some sort of geographical spread because the other thing that came into it a couple of people suggested this idea of almost like franchising teams amalgamating the milan clubs the manchester clubs the the madrid clubs to help free up spaces for other parts of europe but that's a completely different conversation you're talking about franchised soccer in europe that is a different conversation to the creation of a, a european super league on the basis of the clubs that we are currently working with so we can have scandinavia fc and chinch would be happy And we are happy, of course, for the arguments to continue either on email or Twitter. Uh, We end our correspondence with our friend Beck Richmond, who begins an email like this. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Why? I hear you ask incredulously, because it's what Bear, you might remember, Bear is her hirsute husband. And I immediately said to each other after after listening to the new BBC Match of the Day Top 10 podcast. It's entertaining. And I recognise the BBC represents a feeling hand that should not be bitten by several of you, especially in these dangerous times. But surely we can't be the only members of your adoring listening public to immediately spot something. Gary's kitchen with food and lists 
featuring opinionated ex-footballers. Next thing you know, we'll have Guy Mowbray joining in to read random excerpts of his favourite Miss Marple stories. Bravo to the BBC <laughs> for spotting the glory that is set-piece menu and trying to emulate even just a smidgen of it. Keep on keeping on amid the COVID-19 madness. We appreciate the tiny island of joy that you offer us weekly from uh, Beck and Bear Richmond. Set-piece menu at gmail.com. It wouldn't be the first time, would it? We're all completely honest that, that some of our ideas have appeared on a, on a BBC feed. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you can't, you can't get cross about it. It's nice that Linnett has taken his sort of creative inspiration from us. I mean, it's just, I've all, I always knew he looked up to Andy Hinchliffe. I w- always felt that one of his great regrets, Gary Linnett, was not playing in the same Everton team as Chinch. So it's, it's nice that in some way he's, he, he can perform a bit of a nod to him now. Uh, now, hopefully, considering that we haven't mentioned it for the last three episodes and that uh, all of us content generators are at least trying to provide something of a distraction at the moment, you'll forgive us using the coronavirus pandemic as a prompt for our discussion today. Two things seem to have happened over the course of the past few weeks in particular, and they seem to sit rather at odds with each other. On one hand, football is considered so important that some sort of universal response has been required from its administrators and participants to reflect that, usually in financial form, a response that has been difficult to come by and then indeed difficult to satisfy others. On the other, the enforced hiatus has appeared to highlight just quite how much of a mess that the game's finances are in, with many understandably taking advantage of the British government's job retention scheme, furloughing many many of their members of staff and others doing so to much more surprise. So then it's time for what could be the first of a few discussions about what we have learned about football in the pandemic. Does it need one voice and better accountants? I think on the second bit, yes, like it's become really clear that that football has, has kind of envisioned itself for too long as a purely cash flow business. Lots and lots of money comes into the game and lots and lots of money immediately effectively leaves the clubs straight away, either in, in payments to, to players or other clubs in terms of transfers or agents or whatever, that the clubs are always talked about as being community institutions, owners generally now are very careful to, to regard themselves as custodians. No one really behaves like a custodian. I know that Arsenal have cash reserves of about 130 million quid, which is better than most. I, I, I'm not sure there'd be anybody who's got more kind of access to actual savings than that. That would pay Arsenal's wage bill for about six months. It's fair enough that football didn't see the pandemic coming, because no one saw the pandemic coming. But you do wonder now whether we maybe need a bit of a sea change in the way that clubs are held to account by their fans. And that instead of demanding that they spend every penny that goes into them as quickly as possible, we, we, now, we now need to think, all right, actually, do you know what? What's important here is that the club survives regardless of what happens. And that maybe the emphasis on, on spending as much money as possible, where money becomes a sort of sign of, of virility and health, that isn't a, a particularly intelligent way to run your club, a sport, a league. And I do wonder whether that is one of the things that, that fans as a whole will take from this, is that they want their clubs to be safer for the long term rather than just having a great summer. Yeah, perhaps it would be nice to think that once we come out of the other side of this, that the, the celebration about spending huge sums of money on players and having that financial muscle to offer the highest salaries will become, if not a thing of the past, a little less obvious, a little less ostentatious, because what we're seeing is that very quickly, despite some clubs having the ability, seemingly a bottomless pit of money to spend before the pandemic, are suddenly unable to cover the salaries of their their non-footballing staff 
what up three or four weeks into the pandemic so you you can't on the one hand celebrate your ability to spend money and then four weeks later not have enough to cover even your most basic of costs and it, it would be like to, it would be nice to think that football will learn a lesson from that you wonder whether part of the problem in terms of like the players having to pay for the nhs and the clubs being expected to donate to a other clubs and b kind of the, the government part the reason that that conversation's happened more than anywhere else in england is because the Premier League, more than any other league, and it's not true of every other club, but it's true of every other league, the Premier League lionises and celebrates its wealth so openly that it's really hard. Basically, what we've seen is that it's all a bit of an illusion, that there's a lot of money swilling around football, but not much of it stays still. The clubs themselves are are small to medium-sized businesses in any sort of general economic sense. And what we've seen really quickly, and Steve's right, that like it's, it's amazing how fast it's happened, is that these are not especially big businesses. They're not really, they're not Tesco. They're not, they're not kind of huge car dealerships. They're not, you know, Nissan or whatever. They, not the Nissan's a car dealership. They are relatively small businesses with very little money set aside for rainy days because that's how we expect them to run. And the reason it's been so hard for people to swallow the idea that clubs might have to furlough staff, even though they're, 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 in terms of that turnover, they are the sorts of businesses that that scheme is intended for, is because we're so used to discussing them in terms of their incredible, exorbitant wealth. And basically what they've had to do pretty quickly is perform this massive about turn and say, actually, listen, guys, that was all a bit of a marketing spiel. And the reality is we don't have any money. And it's really hard for people either fans or non-fans, like culture in general, to swallow that change. And although I think what, what they're doing now reflects their reality much better than what they were doing before, we've had 25 years of celebrating the wealth of these clubs and it's really hard for us to think, actually, do you know what, all right, yeah, do you know, that was kind of a lie to an extent and we, we now need to accept that the reality is that these are small businesses that don't have much money and they've lost all their income. It's really hard for us to do that and it's not happened elsewhere to the extent because the leads themselves don't talk constantly about how much money they've got and how many billions of pounds they're bringing in. So I wonder as well whether maybe football will have to be a little and moderate in its estimation of its own power, because this has exposed the reality of the business, which is that it's, it's all very fragile and all very much on a sort of on a cliff edge at all times. Yeah, it, it just seems to me kind of, if you're looking at it from um, a fan's perspective, maybe how much how much the game means to fans, but maybe how little it means. And we can, the fans should be putting the game into perspective in terms of the death toll and how economically and, and uh, medically what it's doing to the country and what football means in the, in the grand scheme of things. But I just wonder, is it, is it in, a, in a way, if we're looking at football, the, the cracks, the fissures between players, clubs, fans, the unions, is this, could, there, could something good come out of this? Because clearly there seems to be issues right across the board and and morally i'm not sure whether everybody is is acting in the interests of of everybody else but will anything change we know what it's like we say well when we come out of lockdown you know we'll appreciate maybe people a lot more and the lives that we live a lot more but human beings tend to go back to what they were doing before the pandemic and just carry on and get back in the rat race will anything actually change because now we've seen all these cracks all these problems is anything going to change say six months on when we're out of this clear of this is football going to actually change its ways? Will it actually say we've learned so much, we all have to sit down and work together and do it differently because we can see and we've been shown them the major problems and not just one aspect of the game, I say the clubs, but across the board, all the connections between 
the unions, the fans, the clubs, the players. There seems to be problems everywhere. Is it something that can actually, something positive come out of this and a positive change? I'm fascinated about this aspect, not just with football, but all of society. I mean, you just see this, uh, the incredible reduction in emissions and, and how the, the world and the natural world is responding to all these kind of things. There are all, all sorts of, because these are relatively dark times in terms of society, all sorts of great hopes that are starting to emanate and, and some of them are unrealistic. And I, I wonder if football is an unrealistic one because you, the, the extraordinary circumstances that have given out these, these truths that seem to have been some way beyond or some way deeper than just the service, they, they have given that the, the extraordinary circumstances have given us the light to shine upon these issues. But because they are extraordinary, won't that be, if football is to not heed any of these uh, points, won't football say, well, it was because it was so extraordinary that we don't see it happening again, therefore we don't need to necessarily insure ourselves against these extraordinary circumstances giving away to what has been, for a lot of us, rather eye-opening stuff. In the short term, you'd like to think lessons will be learned. I think we've already seen one demonstration, perhaps, that it might take a little bit more than than what's happening right now, or at least how far into the pandemic we are currently, for there to be a massive sea change. I mean, look at the situation with Tottenham, what, less than two weeks after furloughing their non-playing staff. You then see reports in the papers that if Harry Kane's going to move, it's going to be for at least £200 million. Well, you can't have one thing where you're saying, well, we have a cash flow crisis to the extent where we can't pay our own staff, but we do also want a world record fee for our star player. You either, you're either running short of cash or you're not. Yes, it would be entirely unfair to put yourself in a position where you were enabling your rivals to feed on the carcass of your club to, to take your best players for a snip of what their market value was before the pandemic. But we're, we're already seeing there that, you know, you, you've got, you're effectively delivering one message in one situation and the entirely opposite message with headlines in relation to that other story, even if, even if it was just newspaper talk. So yes, you would certainly hope that the longer this goes on, the more that football will prepare itself better in the future for something similar because there have been plenty of reports from medical experts as well as those who work in football who accept that even if we can get the season restarted at some point it doesn't necessarily mean we won't have to take another break if there's a second surge of, of COVID-19 that affects the population in a, in a similar way to, to how it has done at the moment. What they weren't prepared for, it would seem to me, is, is the, the kind of reaction, particularly that Spurs and Liverpool got to doing something which they thought would be well within their rights, considering the financial situation that a lot of people find themselves in. And the football clubs, I guess, thought that they would be kind of swept along on that tide and not be considered a different case. And Rory, this is something that you've uh, written about. Do you think that they were not prepared, particularly Spurs and um, Liverpool, a little bit less so Newcastle, given the, the circumstances they find themselves in? For, for somebody saying, hang on a minute, you, you make an extraordinary amount of money. And as the case, of course, with Spurs' owner, he's worth, what, four and a bit billion? Well, I don't think Liverpool can have been surprised if they saw what happened to Spurs. I think what, what happened was that they, they all took what is actually a perfectly rational and defensible business decision, which is that they're, they're, they're eligible for this scheme to an extent they fit the criteria pretty well. Um, and if you think about it, like, so Liverpool's turnover is, say, 500 million quid. If there's a company on Merseyside that, that has turned over 500 million quid, like, a, I don't know, yeah, like a car firm or a, 
a logistics company or something that's turned over 500 million quid in the last year, which is more than feasible. That's not a huge, that's not a kind of eye-watering sum of money when you bear in mind that's the turnover of quite a large Tesco Extra. That, that, that business will have, will have had this year where it's turned over 500 million quid and now it's had to furlough its staff because it's, it's seen its income dry up, which has happened in most industries that aren't functioning. That, that company's staff are now safer than Liverpool's staff. That's the real upshot of Liverpool being talked out of furloughing. And I, I felt that they, should, they shouldn't have furloughed. I think it's morally reprehensible, especially for Liverpool, which is a club that, that sells itself on things meaning more. And it's, it purports to have all these kind of semi-socialist values, small s socialist values. Logistics firm that's furloughed will not, will not have to set staff. That's the whole point of that scheme. Whereas Liverpool at some point, as they made clear in their statement, will have to find savings somehow. And hopefully that comes from the players taking enough of a wage cut to cover all of the losses, which I'm amazed hasn't happened individually at every club already and didn't happen in the first week. The long-term effect is that Liverpool will have to not spend money somewhere and that could well be in job losses for non-playing staff. It may, hopefully, if it's anywhere, it'll be that they just won't spend, won't spend any money next summer or they might have to sell Mohamed Salah and replace him with a player who cost half the amount and that's how you, how you save the money that that is the obvious thing to do and I think the reason the reaction was so strong was partly because the Premier League shows off its wealth but also because the way we understand football economics and this might be wrong is that there are ways you can get that money back you can get it back in the transfer market you can pay players less you can get the players to take a cut there, there seems to be other ways than hitting the government pocket where that when that money is needed for, for companies that don't have that same recourse in the future in terms of what Chint said, I think there will be changes to football. I think football will be different. I found it really uneasy looking at kind of transfer stories about Man United planning on, um, planning on signing Jadon Sancho for 120 million quid in the summer, whenever the summer is. And yet you think, well, hang on, you cannot possibly be thinking the transfer market works like that in the future. Not a chance. Not a chance. Either because you won't have the money to spend it, or because there's no way that Borussia Dortmund hit will need 120 million pounds instead of 80 million pounds handle them down and I think that's where I found it kind of hard to swallow kind of football going on as normal is the fact that there appear to be people whether they're inside football clubs or within the media I don't know who don't seem to have realized that the world has fundamentally changed and we will all have to adapt to that very very quickly but I think that those changes will largely be enforced rather than voluntarily assumed yeah, football needs to read the room better going forward than it perhaps has done so far because it was entirely unfair that footballers were, were held up by the government as being those that would need to dig into their pockets to, to help bail out the NHS as they have subsequently proved they were already planning to do to do something to help society at large. It was entirely wrong that football was treated as being on a plane above every other industry in terms of the money it has available and therefore the impact it's able to make. But of course, as, as to, to use the, the comparison that Rory has just made with a, a logistics company in the same sort of area, is that they don't have a dozen people earning five million pounds a year on their payroll. They don't have this, they're not constantly in the spotlight in terms of the, the cash that they're spending or in terms of the way they're going about their, their business, the demonstrations of bling, those strengths of power. Other big companies with greater turnovers in a Premier League club are doing so in the background. They're doing it quietly. So that is unfortunately what has thrust football into the spotlight, however unfair that might be. And what we have learned 
from this, from a positive side of things, is just how benevolent footballers can be because they have demonstrated that they do see beyond themselves and that they are willing to step up and make a difference. But it would be nice to see other areas of society, other rich people within our society doing something similar and matching what footballers have done and, and, and following that example, because it was a great example to set that you know, football isn't the only big business we've got in this country. It's just unfortunately the most obvious and the easiest to pick up on. But if they don't read the room better, then we'll just go back to normal very, very quickly. So Rory is absolutely right. You can't, once football resumes, once we do have a transfer window or a registration window at some point later in the year, probably than we're used to it being, it would be highly inappropriate for football clubs to start throwing money around again in a manner of which would suggest that they they don't realise what's happened over the course of the preceding few months. That was the point I wanted to back up that Steve just made there about it being, you know, unfair just to look at football. There's a lot of very wealthy individuals in this country doing a whole variety of, of jobs. So don't just single out football. But I was looking at football as morally, not necessarily for, for funding the NHS, but it's just looking at the the clubs and the companies that they work for to say, well, if we were to take a, a pay cut, we could help other people stay in work for the for the company that we or the club that we all work for. So that's why I was looking at, at footballers in, in in that way. But if we were to if you were to take the Premier League and the Championship and Leagues one and two, how many of those clubs could sustain themselves for say six months? We're probably just looking at a select few in the Premier League, I presume. Even there's a lot of Premier League clubs that wouldn't be able to sustain themselves in terms of cash flow. So it's not just a problem for the Championship and, and Leagues 1 and 2. There are Premier League teams that clearly would get into, into big trouble if, if this goes on too much longer. OK, it, it's, it's come from nowhere. We didn't expect it. But that maybe should make you think about how you run your club and how football runs the club. So surely that's what I'm saying about the good, not the good, but actually just shining a light on the way that these clubs are run. But I just wonder how many, how many of those clubs in, in those leagues could survive for six months, Roy, do you reckon? Well, see, I think this is the way that it changes. It's, the, it's one of those opportunities where you could have like a positive change, but you'll probably, you, you might well end up with a negative one. Basically, if it goes on for like a year, I don't think any of them, I don't think anyone, any football club can, can sustain itself indefinitely. You, they'd maybe have to come to some sort of agreement with the players where you say that when we I was can't say pay the players you. with, yeah, the players would have to yeah. kick in and say, we need to 70% of our, just to keep, just to keep surviving. We're the, we're the biggest outlay, presumably, the club has. Yeah. So they're the ones that would have well, to make the biggest sacrifice. But still be, they'd still be very well paid, wouldn't they? But so, it well, made a difference to the club. I would have thought, certainly at Premier League level, you could go to the players and not say, we will pay you a base level of whatever it is you need to, to meet your requirements. But the thing is, is I mean, I, I was going to say something glib about, about, as you know, change, but you probably don't. But the vast majority of players will have outgoings that match their incomings. Absolutely. That, yeah, yeah. That's how most of us, rightly or wrongly, tend to live. That everybody not, does. It's not just yeah. footballers. Everybody lives somewhere close to their means. So, I mean, I'm from I'm from Yorkshire. So obviously, we save constantly. And I, you know, I go I go clothes shopping once a year. And if I can't find anything I like, I just steal stuff. But and you get your the, um, haircut by your wife. You get my haircut even, by my even wife when there's now. no lockdown. The, um, oh, that, that would not explain her semi-amateurish performance, to be honest. But like football, it sounds ridiculous when you think that someone earning 100 grand a week might kind of need that money. And they obviously don't need that money, but they will have outgoings that require them to have that money. So to some extent, they won't be able to say, right, do you know what? 
And Carlos Tevez said that really nice thing about footballers could afford to live without a paycheck for, for a year. And he's probably right in a broad economic sense. And he is one of my favourite economic thinkers, Carlos Tevez. But th- there will be a lot of players, maybe not the absolute elite who are on 350 grand a week, but there'll be a lot of players who earn a, a, an absolutely unfathomable amount, amount of money who kind of need it to pay their mortgage and who have cars that they have to, that would get repossessed and who have a lot of players support their families, their broad families, and, and spend an awful lot of money that way. They would all be all right, but it would be a fundamental change for them to be told, right, what you're now getting is 10 grand a week, which is still a lot of money, don't get me wrong, that's still a lot of money. I think that that could work to keep some of the clubs from going under if they negotiated wide-scale cuts with players or wide-scale deferrals over an extended lockdown, over an extended absence of football, which is something we're going to have to maybe confront at some point because it may well be that, that as Steve says, whatever, whatever happens with, it, with this season, I found it bizarre that people are saying, well, we can get to, to August or September and play next season as normal. Next season isn't going to be normal, not a chance, uh, which is why, I, to me, playing out this season is kind of the easiest thing to do. But the... Um, the other big expense change is that is transfer payments. The clubs owe each other a lot of money in, in delayed amortised transfer payments. A lot of them don't have the funds to pay that without the TV revenue. And that is where you get the other, the other big problem, which is that football itself kind of becomes bankrupt because they, they all owe these huge sums of millions and millions of pounds. To, sometimes the club's in the same league and you could maybe do something where you wipe off some of the debt and... I don't know, kind of accumulate the debt and, and then repackage it. That might work. A lot of it in, in England, obviously, is abroad. I'm not sure that, that, that there's an easy solution to that. That's the economic driving force behind trying to get the league restarted. They, at some point, they will need that money because football doesn't have a huge amount of wiggle room despite the vast sums involved in it. That, uh, that's kind of like their mortgage, isn't it? The, 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 the transfer payments that are, that, that are pushed further down the road. Chinch, a quick question to you, and then Steve's going to come in. Uh, the question is, during your career, what would you have said was your, your biggest regular outgoing? Was it your mortgage for your house, or, or was it something else? What was the thing that you would no, be wasn't. most worried about being able to meet were you not to be mm. paid for three months, say? It's a really interesting point, and one that we should... Um should talk about because I remember, I'm ashamed to probably say it now, but my monthly credit card bill was 15,000 pounds. 15,000 pounds back in what? whenever it was, late, late night, exactly, in the late 90s. So it is a very good point, people, and even I've talked about, you know, players, drop your, drop your wages by 50%. But that's, again, all the points that Rory made there about where all that money goes. They don't necessarily stash it all in the bank and they've got 35, 40 million sat there. A lot of the money that comes in will be going out in different areas. And however much money you get paid, believe me, you can spend it. So again, I was spending that type of money. God knows what I was spending it on, but I was spending that money regularly because I had a regular high income coming in when I was playing. So that is, is, is absolutely right. And is, then, is that then when, why maybe footballers are saying, whoa, whoa, just hang on a minute. We can't take a 70% pay cut because I wouldn't be able to pay my mortgage, to pay for my second, third home, to pay for my family, to pay for all the different things that the money go. Is, is that why footballers have been a bit reticent to, to say, well, yeah, absolutely, I can afford it. I can drop my wage by 50%. It's probably because they, they can't afford to do that. Okay, it's a luxury, all this extra stuff that they have, all the extra homes and cars and, and paying for, for family members. It is all great, but is that why the players are so reticent to say, across the board, we'll all take, a, say, a 50% pay cut? 
I think I think partly it probably is. I think that to an extent, certainly the PFA's position has been that they they were worried that that anything that was agreed at Premier League level might then be applied at League One, League Two level, and the players there just can't afford to take substantial pay cuts. They, they you know that if you're doing well in League Two, you might be on a hundred grand a year, which is which is good money. Don't get me wrong; that's it's more than I earn, and it's it's that's really good money. But if you're then told, look, we're going to take thirty grand off you, knock off the tax as well. You're suddenly looking at that is kind of you probably you you'll have a nice house, but you might suddenly struggle to, to afford the mortgage on it. Mm-hmm. And even this is a really hard argument to make, but even with with Premier League players, and yeah, you're right that you know that if you're you're not there's not many many tears shed if someone can't pay pay the mortgage on their third home. That's not that's not a great sort of recipe for sympathy. I think if you look at the number of players who support their families. And who have who, who will be paying mortgages to an extent on family on on homes for their parents or homes for their sister or brother or whatever that that changes it a little bit. But the the other thing is that you're, you you are asking people to take a, a hit to the lifestyle to which they are accustomed. And at whatever level your lifestyle is, you can see why people might pause before they do that. And it's I'm not saying that I sympathise with footballers or say that you know their money should be should be sacrosanct and we shouldn't expect them to take any sort of to make any sacrifices whatsoever because of course the people with third homes should be the first to give things up like that's fine so is is this why players are saying we're willing to make donations of a certain amount but we're not willing to to drop a percentage of our wages no i think i think there's part of the problem with this conversation and again it's only happened in britain and i think a lot of the kind of this is a whole different subject but i think a lot of our response as a culture a media culture a kind of news culture to this whole situation has been incredibly immature and has really shone a light on, on the kind of lack of intelligence in public discourse in this country. I think basically what happened was that several different issues got conflated because it made it on the surface like easier for people to understand and then it got hijacked by politicians and by people with, with access to, to grind and weapons to wield. Um, I think the players... Other targets were, to deflect away from. Yeah. I think the players were always happy to make a donation because they a lot of them, the vast ninety nine percent of them will do it anyway. They'll 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 be don- donating to stuff. So it's a, it's just a case of redirecting the funds that you're putting into your charity for homelessness or to feed kids or whatever, and saying right, actually that bit for now can go to the NHS. That's fine. I think they were always happy to do that. I think what happened was that when Tottenham furloughed, the players suddenly thought, hang on, if we start taking pay cuts, that isn't helping the NHS that's helping our clubs survive. Now, that, again, is something that I'm certain they would be willing to do if they could be p- convinced that the owners weren't just pocketing that money to prevent them having to take the hits. But also, I think they felt a little bit hoodwinked in terms of being told, you've got to take a pay cut, do your bit for society, do your bit for society. And they, they're intelligent enough to think, well, hang on, if we take a pay cut, that doesn't do anything for society. That just means that our clubs... I mean, or you can make the argument that it means the clubs don't have to furlough, which means they're not taking money off the government. But they might have furloughed anyway. And I presume that's what, that's what the Tottenham thing taught them, was that, hang on, they're going to furlough anyway, so why on earth do they need us to take a pay cut? Don't try and kind of use this moral, rhetorical exercise to get money off us, when what you mean is you want to save money during this unprecedented time. What we want to do is give our money to people who need it. I think the players... No one has come out of it well, but the players came out of it better than anybody else, to be perfectly honest. The whole reaction has been essentially illogical. That there, was, there should have been a conversation that had in every club straight away saying, look, there is this government furlough scheme. The, the PR optics of us taking it is, are going to be nightmarish. 
can you please take a pay cut to ensure that we don't have to lay, to lay anybody off and we don't have to access government money? And at that point, you, football gets the early PR win and it says that we're, we're not going to cost the country any money. At that point, you can then start talking amongst the players about saying how much you want to donate and amongst the clubs saying how much do we need to save depending on how long this all lasts. And you can maybe cut that, you can maybe defer it. It was actually quite a simple conversation to have, but we're not really capable in this country of having intelligent but simple conversations because everything's done at such a pitch of emotion. Football's initial responsibility really should have been to football. So much pressure was applied to them to assist society at large. But the first responsibility within any club should have been to protect the non-playing staff and then to work out how the money was going. Because there's an awful lot of money swishing around in football. How was that money going to filter down to protect those clubs in the championship, League One, League Two, whose positions were even more precarious? Andy Holt, who is the chairman at League One Accrington Stanley, wrote a really eloquent Twitter thread about this. And Accrington are an interesting case in point because they're playing in the third tier of English football. But I would suggest that with the exception of Macclesfield, they're the smallest club in the league in terms of people regularly coming through the gate and in terms of their turnover. And he was explaining how difficult it would be for them to move forward, to even complete this season, especially if that was behind closed doors, because they really do live from match day to match day in terms of the money they they bring in. And it was really enlightening as a demonstration in terms of how easy it is to see this situation situation from the vast sums of money that come in and immediately go out of Premier League clubs and it's easy to forget those further down the food chain but not that far down the food chain who are sudden who who genuinely have reasons to suddenly be struggling just three or four weeks into lockdown but then again Andy Holt went on to talk about how it would be better to just end this season and start worrying about their ability to start the next whilst also talking about the fact that we could have another lockdown in in the autumn that was something he was speaking about this idea that there could be a surge and we might have to lock down in in the autumn so you end up again with this this debate where somebody's saying we we shouldn't play the final nine or ten games of this season but we might only get the first nine or ten of next season played before we might have to stop again it's it's such a difficult situation that these these clubs even in just the third tier of English football when you think about English football being so cash rich but it, you have to sympathise with the position they find themselves in, even though, you know, must add that Chinch and I, both in particular, work with lots of people who have to account for only working nine or ten months of the year. Every year they have to work their finances around having a couple of months where they might not have much in the way of income. And then at the same time, they also need to prepare themselves for, for a rainy day. So it's, there are lots of people who work within football who are very, very badly affected by this in the same way that there are lots of people in other areas of society who were badly affected by this, whatever industry they might, might work in. And, and that hopefully, coming back to the point that lessons should be learned at the top, if you've got an awful lot of money coming in, you need to be careful about how much of it is heading out just as rapidly. And there are examples, aren't there, of those like Accrington Stanley uh, that you just mentioned, Steve, where looking after yourself is an understandable instinct to have, as opposed to this idea that football should be speaking with one voice. Football should understand that there are elements to which the game can contribute, but also they can surely understand like Accrington Stanley or those involved in the football media that that you've just been uh, again mentioning, Steve. But we did start this conversation by saying that, that football has suffered or this situation has 
served to accentuate the fact that football at the upper echelons in particular are unable to think of anybody else but themselves. So why, while Andy Holt is able to tell us and, and illustrate to us about why it is important that they are thinking about themselves, because that's not necessarily the pervading norm or the stories that are being told, what we do need to probably say is that football as a whole can learn to maybe find, and it shouldn't just be these extraordinary circumstances that, that, that gives birth to it, but find a way of speaking as a homogenous whole certainly when it comes to dealing with a pandemic, if this is the extraordinary circumstance that we're talking about now. Yeah, I think that that's been something that's definitely kind of shone through straight away is that, that fo- when we say football, who do we mean? What do we mean? That everybody's at loggerheads with each other, that everyone has totally different agendas, everyone has different priorities, all of which are entirely explicable and understandable. And I think it's particularly pronounced in England. I think if you look elsewhere there seems to be less mutual mistrust between, between bodies than there is here, where, where no one's quite sure what everybody else's motivations are. And that's testament to the way the game's been run for 20 years. And it's testament to the, the, the inherent belief, the learned belief that, that everyone's in competition with each other, which they, they don't need to be, that there should be. One of the things, I'm not an expert on this, Hugh, but one of the things that's really struck me during the, the whole pay debate is that this would all be a lot easier if we had a kind of US-style collective bargaining agreement if there were if there was an, a body that kind of haggled over the way players were paid and the terms of the terms of that payment and the the um the kind of centralized negotiation process that we we that is just alien in football but in situations like this is is kind of useful and quite quite important that it's you the have socialism all... with a small s that you mentioned earlier yeah and it but it protects the interests of the players there's an issue i think in terms of the changes that we might see that I think you now have to question whether the PFA can be expected to act for Alexis Sanchez and Macclesfield and the players at Macclesfield, given that their interests and their priorities are are so differently aligned. But I also wonder whether you maybe need some sort of body to look after the way that kind of the Premier League players are treated and their working conditions and all that stuff that sounds silly in normal times because they're Premier League footballers, their lives are amazing. But, but perhaps they do need some sort of centralised protective measure to make sure that they're, that they're looked after when they need to be. But the other thing that I think is really important, just really quickly, because I can see you, even from a distance, making your hand motion. Um, well, on that, the screen, it's about three inches away, so... Yes, that's true. Um, but as the crow flies, it's such a long emotional distance, you. <laughs> is, I, think, I think fans might have to change. I think that's where the change might have to be, is that that fans might have to accept that the, what I'd saw described by someone the other day is football's 25-year bull run is over and that you cannot therefore complain if your club, whenever the registration win- window is this year, if your club decides, actually, do you know what? We are going to sell this player. We are going to have to cut our cloth accordingly a little bit. We are going to have to reduce our, our outgoings. We're going to have to be a bit more... Even if it's just for two or three years, we're going to have to, be a bit, we're going to, have to kind of pay for this somehow. And that means this player gets sold. This player doesn't get a pay rise. We, we run the risk of this player run, running down his contract. I think that all that stuff has to be internalised a little bit by fans who have to accept that the way things were is not going to be the way things are going to be. Yeah, understanding perhaps that whilst there are financial issues that they don't necessarily think affect them directly, but when it 
infects the competitive advantage or disadvantage over the course of the next one, two, three years, that's when it's really going to hit home. Well, exactly. If you'd said to the people complaining about the club's furloughing, if you'd said to the fans, so everything is, this is, this is a, an SPM style work, everything is tribal. The people who want the season voided want the season voided largely because it either suits them or doesn't negatively impact them. So Arsenal, who are eighth or whatever, or tenth, it's fine for them to avoid the season. What they're losing, they don't really care about the consequences because there are no consequences for their team. And it's easy for them to say, oh, well, it's, there will be some people who lose out. So it's, but it's natural that to Liverpool fans or Leeds fans, they'll be like, well, we don't want the season voided. That's no, one is no more an expression of bias than the other, or an expression of not maybe of bias, but of having a, a horse in the race. If you said to the fans who universally condemned all these clubs for furloughing rightly, that the, it was a choice between furloughing and not spending money for the next year or two on transfers. It, most people would probably still said, don't furlough, but there'd have been a proportion who'd have said, all right, actually, fair enough, in that situation, furlough, protect yourselves, and then make sure you come out of this strongest. Because that is ultimately what is important to a lot of football fans, and that's not right or wrong, it's just the way it is. And that's the problem in terms of trying to speak with one, with one voice, is that everyone has their own perspective on everything. And it's really hard to unify that. Yeah, look, as a fan, you know, accept, don't, don't celebrate and don't demand the spending of vast sums of money by your club in the future. Just because you've got 100, 200 million quid coming in because you're a Premier League club uh, playing, playing on the television on a regular basis, it would be, your club would be much better served spending a smaller proportion of that on its playing staff and, and planning better for the future. And now direct from Andy Hinchcliffe's kitchen slash diner area, it's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, what a soccer story. This is when Andy uh, tells his tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. And uh, Chinch, just before you do your story today, uh, we have um, a request from Chris Lomax from menu at gmail.com. Good evening, gents. He obviously wrote during the evening. I was wondering if you could ask Andy about the time that Eddie Large, a British comedian, those outside of the UK may well have heard of him and Sid Little in the Little and Large combo. He recently passed away due to coronavirus. Eddie Large gave the halftime team talk at Manchester City and then Chinch gave away a penalty in the final minutes, relinquishing a 3-0 lead to draw 3-3 against Bournemouth. Uh- I remember, the, I remember the game and I remember slipping to give the penalty away. I, I didn't, I, it was simple as that. It, it can happen in the first minute, it can happen in the 95th minute. But I, the, You panicked, it, according to the write-up. Panicked is the wrong word. Slipped is the word that should be used. I, how can I not remember? Mind you, Eddie Large's impressions weren't particularly great. So, but what was he, if we're three and a half time against Bournemouth, I think we're chasing promotion that season. So what would Eddie Large have been doing in the dressing room? And it, this must have happened, but I might have been, I might have been having a, a tinkle. I, I might have been you know, doing some stretching, some deep, deep stretching. So I didn't maybe, it must, I, I must have been there. I, must have rem- I just don't remember it. Either his impressions were that bad that I don't remember them or my memory is, is failing and it's probably the latter. But in the corona, it's been, we've been talking about coronavirus, the lockdown is what everybody's talking about. And I know how incredibly difficult it is for anybody I mean I'm really fortunate I've got Carly here I've got little primrose at two and a half here so we're doing a lot of babysitting it's wonderful to be around her see her grow up as well so I'm I don't know in many ways getting the 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 best of all this I know it's a terrible situation but I'm trying to make the best of it strangely I'm not missing the game too much but I'm sure when I get back in there I'll be right back at it 
being one of the greatest, or not the, the greatest pundit out there. Um, but I've been trying to, what have I done with myself? Well, actually, the, the coronavirus haircut is a, a, a big thing that is apparently trending on social media, which clearly, even in this situation, I'm not going to lower myself and do. But Nikki did a, a, a surprisingly good job on my barnet with a beard trimmer, not, not hair clippers, a beard trimmer and a pair of kitchen scissors. And it was her first attempt, apparently, at haircutting, which I don't believe because she's had many, many lovers. And I feel she must have had, you know, somewhere down the last 35 years, she must have had a go at someone else's bonds. She looked a little bit too professional for my liking. At first, it was a bit long on the top. I looked a bit like Travis Bickle uh, from Taxi Driver, but she, she sorted out that. It's grown back. And it, it, it's when I go out walking on the, 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 the leafy streets of, of Woodford, I, I'm not laughed at. People still see that it's me, and they don't seem to laugh at the barnet. So I've been through the coronavirus haircut, when I've come out of that pretty well. But it's, it's the laying of a, a patio, which I think is the mark of any real man. Steve, have you laid a patio? Rory, have you laid a, a patio? I've never no, done a hard day's work. It, it's not something that, with, I've seen your hands. You, you, you've, got, you've got ladies' hands, haven't you? You're not, you haven't got rough and ready hands. You've not been down the docks like I have. I have had a major construction project ongoing over the course of the last couple of weeks, but it really has just been rebuilding Lego. Yes, and also the work you had done on your house, you paid workmen to do that. And didn't oh, get your, quite your, right, your, yeah, your yeah, yeah. hands, you know, calloused. Well, sorry, Rory, go on. Chinch, what were you doing down the docks? <laughs> I, that, that's another story. Actually, I'll tell you about the, uh, the weight training, the gym we used down the docks with Les Helmer Everton, but that's another story. Anyway, so I'm used to, you can see me, I'm a big physical guy. I'm, you know, I'm the Jack Reacher of Woodford. I'll get out there and get my hands dirty. And I thought Nikki wanted the patio extended to incorporate the, the lovely fountain that we have. And we had the debate, which probably every household is having, do we have a freestanding base for the fountain or do we incorporate it? And I felt incorporating it would be the, the logical move. Okay, the new patio slabs are going to be brand new and we'll give us a weathered. It's going to look a bit incongruous to start with, but ultimately it will work well. But I've never laid a patio. So I've been digging out the hole. I've been laying in the limestone base. I'm now getting to the point where I do have a problem. And I was going to ask the listeners, certainly around the Cheshire area, whether they could recommend a, a company who could deliver some Indian stone Raj mix. I only need 2.25 square meters of Indian stone glory to finish the job. I don't need a vast amount of stone. I need some edging stones as well, but I need a company that can deliver me this Indian stone at my time of need so I can complete the job, take a picture of it, send it to you, and you can see clearly the man that I am. Well, Chinch, this is uh, something that I imagine will be uh, immediately the top of everybody's lists when they're thinking about mm -hmm. contributing to society and helping out those in need. It is the Indian Raj, uh, what was it? Indian Raj what mix? Indian Stone, Indian Stone Raj, R-A-J, mix. There's many different types of Indian Stone, but I need the Raj mix to kind of go with what we have here already. But I, I don't need a vast amount of it. I can send you the, the plan that I've drawn out. I actually cut out little bits of paper the size of the stone so I can move them around like a little jigsaw so I get it absolutely right. So, so Nikki's happy with, the, uh, with how it finishes. So I put a lot of time and effort into this. Granted, I do have a lot of time on my hands at the moment for one reason or another. But I, I, do enjoy, I do enjoy this, but it's getting levels, it's getting angles. That's what laying patios are all about. So once it's done, you need any tips, I can come around and, uh, and, and lay something for you, a patio hopefully. 
Uh, so, uh, yes, one would suggest that that is your uh, giving back to society if you ask society to help you out in the time of need. Uh, any information you may well have of Indian Stone, a Raj mix, or indeed any other kind of royal mix, uh, let us know. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Uh, please subscribe, <laughs> share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy, and Rory. And to you all for listening, we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Chinch, you're not the only person doing a bit of um, manual labour. I spoke to Sean Deitch, podcast favourite the other day. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a lovely chat with him. He's a very nice man. Uh, and he told me, with a, and it, was one of the, it was a really Sean Deitch thing to say, and I think he, I think he knows he's doing it, but he, 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 he was telling me that he's jet-washed everything in his, in his garden and he's run out of things. He, and he, the, the, his last words to me were, I've, I've run out of things to jet-wash. And I, 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 it was at that point that I thought, is Sean Deitch doing this all as a big, not con, that's too negative, but like, this is all a big trick, isn't it? Like, Sean Dyche knows that when he talks about jet washing, people are going to think, oh, Sean Dyche. We just had a really in-depth chat about, like, tactical analysis of, of Burnley's performance over the last year. And it was almost as though he had to kind of, to balance it out by talking about jet washing. But he's doing manual, la- manual labour as well. He, he, in fact, he said it's the first hard day's work he's done in quite a long time as well. To be fair, I'm not sure I would class jet washing as manual labour. Holding a it depends what you're jet washing water over a patio or over it doesn't de- depend what you're jet washing jet washing a car or a patio it's not hard work you're just basically holding the hose and the nozzle it's a shame actually Sean Dyche is is banned from our managers most likely too because managers most likely to run out of things to jet wash would most definitely <laughs> be Sean Dyche. <laughs>